Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning. And let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and in my estimation, in my estimation, this this may be the most frightening passage of Scripture in all the Bible. And let me say this, it is meant to be. It is meant to be frightening. It's a harsh warning in this passage to the whole church. This is not to unbelievers, this is to the church, the gathered church. But before I can move there, before I can move to the fourth thing that needs to accompany our regular, consistent, confident approach to God, and that fourth thing is found in verse 35, it says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence... And then verse 36, you have need of endurance. That's the next thing we're heading. In the middle of that, there is a warning passage. And it's brought to bear upon the consciences of those who gather. So far, I have mentioned three things that need to accompany our approach to God. The first one was followers of Jesus Christ are to enter the holy place with confidence. The first two messages included a challenge for prayer. And prayer is probably the greatest expression of the Christian's lifestyle of faith. Depending on God in prayer, both private and public prayer with the assembly. A a second thing that needs to accompany our approach to God, I have already mentioned that followers of Jesus Christ are to draw near with sincerity. This one included drawing near to God with an honest and a cleansed heart. The third thing is followers of Jesus Christ are to hold fast the confession. And they're to do that Together, in fact, that included two responsibilities, which I covered last time. The first responsibility is to hold fast for yourself. And then secondly, in verse 24, or excuse me, in verse number 23, to hold fast together. In other words, we have a responsibility to mutually encourage others to hold fast. Now, these responsibilities also included this exhortation. And look at verse number 25 of Hebrews 10. Not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this admonition is put forth very strongly. The failure of some to continue attending the gathered community is not cast simply as neglect here. It's cast as a wrongful abandonment. In fact, the very Greek term used here to forsake is found 170 times 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where when Israel reproached God and where they abandoned the Lord and His ways and His covenants and His laws and His command, this very word is used. So it is a very strong word. The point is, the New Testament church is not to abandon. It is not to get into a bad habit of skipping meeting together. It should be a very high priority on your list. It should be on the top of the list. Now, why is it that some would forsake the assembly? Well, some, according to our passage here, may have abandoned because of persecution, because of affliction, because of suffering. Some falsely assumed that Christ had delayed his return. Disappointed, they left. Some stopped attending in order to return to the old religion. Remember, Judaism. Hebrews is specifically having, has an audience of Jews. I'm going to go back to the old country comfortable religion i i knew what to expect there matter of fact there wasn't so much affliction and persecution and suffering there i was pretty comfortable there and so they wanted to go back to the synagogue to temple worship to its rituals and its ceremonies and you know for that fact any system which a person tries to establish a righteousness based on their own good deeds and and works and not accepted by free grace some When tested for their faith, they didn't want to hold fast. They concluded, this is not what I signed up for. And so they didn't want to hold fast their profession of faith in Christ and became rebels to the way and the work of Christ, giving up all belief in Christ. So you see, whatever reason someone would stop attending does discredit their faith. Especially knowing the Word of God teaches that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. That we have been called out from a dark world to gather to hear the apostles' teaching to fellowship with one another, to take the Lord's table, to publicly pray with one another. Those are all God's plan for you. So you see, the the thinking is still very much alive that it is still possible for a man to think that he is a Christian and yet abandon the habit of worshiping with God's people in God's house on God's day. It's like the person who says, boasted, I've been in church two times in my life. The first time they sprinkled me with water. The second time they sprinkled me with rice. And somebody retorted, and the third time they'll sprinkle you with dirt true though i've met and i have people that i know very closely that think that way to darken the door of a church is almost anathema to them but let me say this 
that at this very juncture, this fourth warning passage is injected into this message. And that abandoning the gathered assembly of believers is linked to the first indication of the potential of apostasy, of falling away from God. It's linked linked to gathering with believers. In other words, that somebody who decides, well, I don't think I need church. I don't think I need to gather with believers. I'm just going to drop out and do it on my own. That's the first indication that they already are leaving the faith. And if they persist and continue in that year after year, it shows that they don't think God's word or God's program is so important or so needful for them. Brethren, no matter what the condition might be, believers are to stick with Christ's local church. And we should exhort one another to continue attending faithfully, especially in the light of the Lord's return and the shortness of life. The Bible's a big book. We've got to learn what God's mind is so we can grasp the great glory of God. So God will always remain big to us. And the plan of God will always remain special to us. And we would always think that I am so privileged to be a Christian that there's no greater privilege than to be in the family of God. And to live with that in in your mind is something that is very much in the mind of the writer and the pastor here writing in this book. So here in our text is sandwiched between an exhortation for believers to worship God. And along with that exhortation, three things are included to seize the opportunity to corporately worship God in verse 22, to hold fast our confession of faith in verse 23, and to pay attention to one another's situations and personal needs in verse 24 and 25. And then right there, boom, the warning. Big letters, warning! Usually when you see a sign that says warning, you stop and you consider, why am I being warned? What danger lies ahead of me that I should be warned at this particular point? Well, on the other side of the sandwich, the warning, there's an appeal for believers to persevere in verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Notice what it says. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So in the middle of these is sandwiched the warning passage concerning God's judgment on willful disobedience. A warning that is intended to provoke fear. Here's the main warning before I look at the details of the text. Here's the main warning. The danger that those who have attended, who have heard the truth, might spurn the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Even the thought of that should provoke fear. It should provoke fear throughout the whole body. So then corporate worship is important because to neglect worship gatherings, to withdraw from the Christian assembly leads to either or both 
these things. Deliberate, deliberate and despicable behavior. If you get away from the teaching of the Word of God, the fellowship of believers, the breaking of bread, the public prayers, then you start to live in the flesh by the world within the realm of Satan's place and you start going down. And a second thing is deliberate rejection of God and His message spoken through the Son. So here is a warning to avoid a sin that is absolutely fatal. The text before us will show us what this sin is, how it is committed, and the inevitable consequences of committing it. And those who are inclined to fall into this sin are not just temporary backsliders who lost interest in the things of God for a time. Neither are they believers who are in despair about some kind of spiritual failure or temporary floundering they find themselves. Nor are they believers sinning unintentionally or in ignorance. For sure, in this passage, the response of these people is inappropriate all the time before the Lord. And at all costs, it should be avoided by us. And that's the point of the warning. Don't commit this sin. Well then, let's see what Scripture says about these persons and make sure that you never become one of them. And I want to say this, the warning doesn't mean anyone of his hearers have committed this willful sinning yet. But some could be close to falling over the edge of the cliff. And that's always the warning. The warning is don't go that way. Don't go there. That's the warning. Don't drive down a road that the bridge is out. Don't keep going. Warning. Bridge out. Stop. Go the other way. That's what it means. This is the warning for the church. It's a warning to be taken seriously. It's a warning in which you should have your ears on. Your mind engaged. It's a warning that you should examine in this new year the way you've been living your Christian life. It's a warning for you to reconsider the importance of the church and the gathered assembly. And so, I want to look at the description of the one who is committing this fatal sin or could commit this fatal sin, and it could be anyone. It could be anyone. And here it is. I want you to notice from verse 26 and 27 and then verse 29, it says this. Here's the first thing they do. They despise and release the truth of God. They begin to despise and release the truth. They stop holding on to it. Look what it says in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Let me stop there. The New Testament word is used only twice in Scripture. And that's the word willfully. It means 
inner, to have an inner voluntary will. To have a compulsion to do something. Here, it is voluntarily sinning. And notice, this person voluntarily sins after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now get this, brethren, that they are sinning deliberately after they have received the full message of the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they do that, if anybody does that, what's left? In other words, if a person hears the whole message of the gospel and ultimately receives that message and then rejects that message, what is left for them? Look what it says in verse 26. There is no longer, there no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It does not merely mean that such a sin cannot be forgiven, but there is a larger argument here that Christ's sacrifice is God's full revelation and provision for sin, and that anyone who knowingly rejects that sacrifice is without hope. They are without mercy. So this willful sin in verse 26 is the defiant rejection of the sacrifice of the Son of God after hearing the whole message of the gospel and grasping it. See, the great concern here is that the effects of Jesus' sacrifice does not extend to so-called believers who sin persistently or willfully in this manner. If they reject Christ, what else is there to save their souls? Their repudiation of Christ and His sacrifice leaves them nothing. Nothing is left. If one spurns God's mercy, all that is left is God's judgment. Verse 27, look what it says. But a terrifying expectation of judgment. The fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. In other words, that this person who once believed and once professed has now become God's enemy. And the phrase expectation of judgment means right here and now they will be haunted by the fear of hell. And not only in the end when they finally and really will suffer for it. It's like that passage of scripture in Zephaniah. When was the last time you read Zephaniah? If you're in your daily Bible reading, if you are reading through the scripture, you will hit Zephaniah. But listen to what Zephaniah says in chapter 1, verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So see, the first thing this person does in their willful sinning is that they let go of the truth. Why? They're not not there in the gathered assembly to hear the truth. 
So they begin to let go of it, and the truth is replaced with something else. A second thing is in verse number 29. Go down to verse number 29 for a minute and go to the the middle of the verse because this is what it says there. Here's the second thing they do. It says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who, here it is, they despise and reject the Son, and it it says it in this way, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God in verse 29. That means they treat the Son as having no value. Nothing special in Jesus. In fact, this particular word is also used in other passages of Scripture where it says to trample underfoot. That particular phrase is used like in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13 where it says you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become saltless or tasteless, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. That means that the salt that's not salty is useless. Throw it on the ground, let people walk over it. That's how they're viewing now Christ. Second thing there, a second passage of Scripture is found in Matthew 7 where it says, do not... Give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. See, again, pigs have no understanding of the value of pearls. You throw them on the ground, they'll walk on it just like they'll walk on anything else. They're, they're, there's, it's nothing to them. So he's saying here, listen, they treat the sun as having no value, nothing special. And then they make a very gross miscalculation in verse number 29. Look at the last part of the verse. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. See, the new covenant inaugurated by the sacrifice of Christ, that this is Christ's blood shed on the cross that provides definitive forgiveness for our consciences and brings us into a sanctifying, a holy relationship with God and wins us eternal redemption, they consider that and calculate his sacrifice as unclean. In other words, it's unfit. It's ceremonially ceremonially impure. They view Christ in that way. They calculate Christ in that way. See, a Christ without value is not the Christ of Scripture. Brethren, do you believe that the salvation of the Lord, that he, the salvation that He has acquired for us is indeed a great salvation? And that Jesus' priestly and sacrificial work is indeed magnificent. As the, ch- the beginning chapters of Hebrews laid out, in chapter 1 and 2, concerning the Son, Jesus Christ, it said the Son is the inheritor of all things. That the Son is the creator of all things. That He is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the representer of God on earth, that he is the sustainer of all things, that he is the savior of all the redeemed, and he is the finisher of all things, and that when he died, he was exalted to the right hand of God and 
is there making intercessions for the saints. And see, so Jesus has been displayed in these passages as the apex of divine revelation in which Jesus fulfills the office of prophet, the office of priest, the office of king, and is the finisher of all God has spoken. Therefore, the incarnate Son is the superior revelation of God. That's what we've been saying up to this point. That God has spoken in His Son. It is His ultimate communication to humanity. It is the final word on everything. Oh, the superiority of the Son that Hebrews has established before we get to this point. How could you treat Jesus in that way? Obviously, you didn't understand something. You didn't get something. You missed something about who he is. So you see, when you get lost in the grandeur of this so great salvation, we will indeed conclude that it is the greatest thing that could have ever happened to you and me. It is the most supreme gift that could be received by God on this good earth. So you'll not want to let go of the grandest gift that could ever be bestowed by God Himself into your care. The gift of salvation. That's why if you look down at verse number 35, he says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. See, when you understand the salvation and the implications of salvation to you, it's not small, it's great, it's grand, it's huge. I didn't receive something small. I received something so great, it's even hard to define. See, that's what we need to communicate to our family and our friends. The greatness, the grandness, the vastness, the excellence of the way of salvation through Christ Jesus. See, that's why when you gather together for worship, with that in mind, you're going to worship. You're going to blow the roof off because you understand. You don't deserve what God's given you. Yet He he elected you to salvation, you find out later. And He brought you into His family. And he, He wiped out your sin. And He put His righteousness on your account. What more could be greater than that? There's nothing greater than that. Instead... This person, instead of counting Jesus as the Messiah, concludes him to be an imposter. Instead of considering Christianity as the true way of salvation, they conclude it was a cunning, devised fable. Instead of concluding that salvation through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the revelation of God and the will of God, they conclude that it's a hellish delusion. Now you see, they commit a fatal sin of no return. And this sin could be committed by someone who comes to church, sits in the pew, and they just let it all run off them, not through them. 
And so they say, well, my mom and dad, they come to church, and I go to church with them, but when I turn a certain age, I'm done with church. Well, then you never understood. You never understood the greatness of salvation. You never understood the, the fatal sin that could be committed with that kind of thinking. See, these at first may have been converted to a group. They may, they may have been converted to a church or to the likability of a group. Man, those cool, relevant Christians, I'd like them. They got cool music. They're up to date. But they've never were converted to Christ. Because when you're converted to Christ, everything changes. And what people really don't realize there is yet a third thing in the description of this willful sinning, and this is where the coffin is sealed. Look at verse number 29, the last part of the verse. They despise and resist the Spirit of God and, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. The unmerited favor extended to the guilty who deserve damnation of justice. If... That mercy extended to them by the Holy Spirit is rejected. Remember, regeneration is by the Holy Spirit. He's offering the gift of Christ to you in the message of the gospel. If a person rejects that, after having full knowledge of the truth, what then? Well, they heard it all. The problem's not ignorance. In the full light of the truth, they reject Christ and they commit what some have called the unpardonable sin. Like it says in Matthew twelve thirty one. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So to reject what the Holy Spirit has offered is to have no hope. The sin here just describes against the persons of the Godhead. What they have done on behalf of sinners to deliver people from the wrath of God. A rejection of Christ's sufficient sacrifice means that all that is left is punishment. So what do you think God will do? Well, this is what he'll do. He'll hold them responsible. Because he's a just judge. If you look to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse number 28. He says this. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So what does that mean? Well, here's an allusion to the Old Testament of those who sin, who have sinned under the lesser covenant and, and the consequences it brings. So we have here in Scripture a lesser to the greater argument for those more aware of the grammar. This is called a, a fautori argument, an argument from strength, an argument from the lesser to the greater, an argument like when Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from 
your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than the sparrows. The sparrows are less valuable than we are to God. So it's the lesser to the greater, the greater to the lesser. The lesser here is the covenant as mediated through Moses. As in verse number 28, anyone who has set aside, who has forsaken the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, where does this come from? Well, take your Bibles for a minute. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here's the context of this particular passage of Scripture. And notice what's going on in Deuteronomy 17. And I'll I'll read from verses 1 through 6, and you'll get the sense that in this passage of Scripture that he's setting up. Listen, people under the law of Moses, right? they were found guilty. It says in verse number 1 of Deuteronomy 17, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. Verse 2, If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant, verse 3, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped then, or the sun, or the moon, or any heavenly host, which I have, com- I have not commanded. And verse 4, and if it is told you, and you have heard it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true, and the thing... If it is true and the thing is certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates. That is the man or the woman and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence, notice in verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, he is saying here, listen, if you find this particular sin, going on in the camp, you identify, you investigate it thoroughly, then those who are the two witnesses are the ones who throw the stones first. Make sure that you're right. Right? And then the whole congregation throws the stones. In other words, what is it saying? If those who violated Moses' law died without mercy under a lesser covenant, What do you think God will do to those who violate the greater covenant, the new covenant, the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ? What do you think God will do? Well, turn back to Hebrews and you'll find out in verse number 29. See, here's a picture in the New Testament of those who sin under the greater covenant and its consequences. And notice, well, so the greater covenant, the new covenant as mediated through the Son... And here's the argument before I look at the verse. If God was steadfast on how he held people responsible to the law under the old covenant, which acted 
as a signpost pointing to God's final revelation. If God was firm then, how much more? After he has given his final revelation in Jesus Christ, hold people responsible under the new covenant. Look what it says in verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? How much more Will God hold people responsible who shrink back from Christ and willfully repudiate the only way of salvation? How much will God do it? What will God do? Well, the writer of Hebrews lays down this quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32. But notice the quote is from an Old Testament, the Old Testament concerning God's character. That the sinner, in other words, will get full justice. All that is due him from God. And in this passage, the Lord assumes personal responsibility for taking vengeance on those who become his enemies. In other words, God is the witness. He casts the stone. And believe me, if God has thoroughly investigated, there's nothing else to investigate. That apostates are enemies of God. And look at the passage. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is this very passage of Scripture, if you are keen in understanding where it comes from in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, where it says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. You know what that is, right? That's the passage of Scripture that Jonathan Edwards used to preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what he expounded, that in due season, they will slip. In due season, they will be found out. And when they are found out, God will take personal responsibility to hold judgment on them. And there is a terrifying nature to God's judgment in verse 31 of Hebrews 10 it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God to fall into the hands of someone means to fall under their power to come under the power not of a dead idol not of a fictitious God who is merely imagined, but to come under the power of the living God who keeps His promises and executes His threats and judgment, judgments with surgical precision. Who can escape there? No one can escape. See, God knows who his people are. And he knows the ones who have committed the sin. And the warning to the church is, don't commit this sin. Make sure yourself, you're found in the assembly. Make sure that you're under a constant 
washing of the apostles' doctrine. Make sure that you're fellowshipping with one another and with the Lord. Make sure that you're partaking of the elements of the Lord's table that emphasize His death and His shed blood, the center of our faith. Make sure that you're praying together and trusting God. Make sure of those things. Don't be like a person who for whatever reason, steps back and steps out of God's assembly and is left possibly to commit this sin. Well, this willful sinning gives its first indications in the abandoning of the gathered assembly. Now, were these people ever saved? Is an honest question. We're confronted with some who have made a profession of faith and, and formerly had visible signs and visible marks of being truly committed to the Christian faith. But by their very refusal to gather, by their very refusal to grow and continue in their, the faith, they now give fruit that they were not genuinely born again by the Spirit at all. They, have may, they may have convinced others they, that they were believers, possibly at one time, and persuaded even themselves that they belonged to Christ, but their so-called conversion proved to be spurious and counterfeit when the test of their faith came along, when persecutions came and afflictions came, and because of the Word of God, they didn't want to hold on. Remember, this is in the context of holding on. God's, I'm holding on while God's holding me. You're holding on while God's holding you. But God says, listen, if you want to continue to grow, these are the things, these are, these are the means of grace I've given you to grow. So when the test of faith comes, they didn't want to hold on, but they became rebels to the way and to the work of God. So it's appropriate for all believers to genuinely examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. It is appropriate for all believers from time to time to honestly examine whether they are living the life of faith. It it is good to ask yourself... Am I storing up in my mind and heart the truths of God's Word? Do I desire God's Word? Do I desire to be in the fellowship of believers? Do I desire to hear the preaching of the Word of God? Do I desire to put it into practice? Am I living by what I'm hearing? Have I developed an appetite for more food, for more spiritual growth? Ask yourself, am I progressing? Has my growth been, or has my growth been arrested by the, the destructive weeds and thorns of anxiety, self-centeredness, and materialism, trying to snuff out my desire? And then, of course, ask: Am I faithful to the gathered assembly? Or at every wind of a good reason for not attending, I take it. 
this is not a passage of Scripture, I can tell you to come to church. I can say all those kind of things. But in, in light of this passage of Scripture, where I place gathering with other believers has gone up very high. Right? Reading that book, Why We Love the Church by Two Young Guys, this is what he said. I, I, was, I thought it was very interesting. He said, this is what he said. These two young guys writing this book about the church. Of course, it's very favorable. It's a very good book uh, about the church. Just trying to encourage people again to rethink the local church and the gathered assembly. And he said this. He was talking about the year of Jubilee. And he says this. This is what I say we should do. Here's my vision for the church. And he says, let's, let's say this. No Christian conferences... No Christian books written or bought or published. Just Bible reading. Just prayer. And just church attendance. What do you think about that? No more reading about doing community. No more incubation for social change meetings. And to be fair, no more books on discussion groups. Just simply this. Reading the Bible, praying together, and church attendance. What do you think about that? I think we can close down every single Christian bookstore and every book club. And if we just stick right here. Because a lot of books are written around the Bible, but not about the Bible. I think we would do fine. I'm kind of, I sometimes got, kind of get frustrated. We have all these books, and we have an addiction to books. I want to read this book. Oh, this is got Bible. Well, what, how much of the Bible? Have you read through the Bible last year? Is that the plan for your life? So have you been faithful to the simple things God asked us to do? See, that is the vital questions that we need to ask. I think that that's a good vision statement. Reading, praying, church. Reading, praying, church. I could do that. You could do that too. Reading your Bible. Don't read any other books. Just read your Bible. Don't do any other thing except come to church and fellowship with one another. Don't do anything other thing but praying with, with one another. I think that is, I think we would learn to love the church more if we did that. Because you know why? That's what they did. That's what they did. Now, saying all that, I, do, I just want to leave you with this particular passage of Scripture. Because, and I'm not there yet, but I just want to read it to you. Look at verse number 39. Verse 38 says this, But my righteous, one shall, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But verse number 39, look, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. That's the church, right? There's the church. We don't shrink back. We don't give away the truth. We keep holding on to it. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in our country, in our families, in our lives, we don't let go of it. 
Because the Spirit of God's in us and we persevere in the faith till we die. And God takes us to glory. Right? And then we'll enjoy ourselves. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy ourselves now, but it takes the mind of Christ to enjoy ourselves. So the way, how do you get the mind of Christ? By the Scriptures. How do you depend on Christ? Through prayer. Right? How do you know more about God? By reading the Scripture. So there it is. Reading, praying, church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you this morning for warning us. It is a frightful passage of Scripture, Lord. But I think not only today, but tomorrow and the next day, it's needed. I thank you that you place in front of us warning signs. Just like the warning signs of possibly knowing you may have a heart attack or have a stroke. There are certain things we're warned about. Spiritually too, Lord, thank you that you give us warning not to go to a certain place, not to take, to take seriously, Lord, our Christian walk and our Christian faith. Take seriously the word of God and the gathered assembly and the things we do as a church. To Take seriously prayer. Thank you that you warn us. Lord, keep us, all of us, from this sin that we wouldn't even hear of anybody committing it because they take the warning and they desire to live for God through thick and thin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for warning us. Help us now, this next coming week, to consider more faithfully our own Christian walk, your church, your word, and that, Lord, we would take it seriously in a way that possibly we never have before. And, Lord, we'll thank you for what you'll do in our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.